And so let's pray together. We're going to pray over the book of Revelation, and then let's just get right into it. How many of you are ready to get into the Revelation? Are you ready? All right, Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for giving us the very word of God. We pray that you'll open our understanding, open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear what the Lord is saying to the church through this book. Lord, we're living in the last times, perilous times, difficult times, trying times, stressful times. And we pray that, Lord, you will grace us tonight with your word that is like honey to our soul and that builds our faith, that summons our faith to grow. We thank you for that word. Church, breathe, breathe a prayer with me tonight. Just say, Lord, speak to my heart. I receive that word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him Jesus is coming soon. And you can be seated. All right. How many of you have your books with you? Hold them up and, and wave them. Isn't that a beautiful sight? Now, if you don't have one, you should have one. You can go to the connection point after this service and grab one. You know, they're great soul winning tools because everybody wants to know about the last times and that mysterious book of Revelation that some preachers are afraid to touch because, well, you can't understand it. Well, yes, you can. Why would God give us a book we can't understand? I mean, come on. Of course not. So uh, you're going to learn a lot. I mean a lot in this series. Uh, we're just now getting into the, the meat of this book. It's been gravy here to fork. It's, we're about to get into the meat. And, and it's, it's going to be good. You're going to understand more from the book of Daniel. We're going to be going into a lot of different areas in the Bible. And, and things are going to come together for you. And let's remember that um, the promise over the book of Revelation is that if you read it, study it, and keep it, then there is a blessing in it. And so I like blessings. Do you? I mean, I like ble blessings from God. So I'll, I'll take it. So we're going to look at... Uh, the revelation tonight. And boy, are we moving at a good pace too. This is the fourth time we've met, and we're in chapter 8, so we're moving at a good pace. Now, we closed last time with John's prediction in chapter 6 that following the opening of the first four seals, literally one quarter of earth's population will perish. Now, this is a grim prediction, and in a politically correct culture, you've always got to reemphasize and, and, and sort of explain that God is not only a God of love, but God is a God of holiness. And because he's a God of holiness, he must judge sin. Now, if I were to tell you, be sure to be in church this Sunday morning because I'm preaching about the wrath of God. Don't expect an overflow crowd. But if I said, I'm going to preach on how God wants to bless you 12 different ways, we'd have way more people. But let me tell you something. We need to understand not only the God of love, but the God of judgment, because he's both. It is a grim prediction, what we saw with the opening of the first four seals. It's a grim prediction, but it's even more a grim prediction when you realize that this is just the beginning of God's judgments in this book on a Christ-rejecting, ungodly world that wants nothing to do with the Lord. Now, here's the way it is with God. Sin accumulates with God. You know, there's phrases in the Bible like, 
when the, the, the sin reached its fullness or a nation became ripe for judgment. Now, when it says that, what is it saying? It's saying that, that sin accumulated until finally there was a line crossed that only God knows about. It's, it's an invisible line to you and to me. But it, when a culture or a person crosses that line, and, and I think you have to do a lot to cross that line, but when you do, and, and say a nation becomes ripe for judgment, in the, in the case of the book of Revelation, the whole world becomes ripe for judgment, then God judges. And we see this with Noah and the flood. We see this with renegade Jonah who was running from the call of God. God pre- uh, prepared a great fish and you know the story, swallowed him and, and he came out of that fish preaching like a madman, which I would have done too. Just point me in the direction, Lord, I'm going. Um, the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, there, there was a line crossed. And, and the Bible says when you read that story that the cry of Sodom's sin reached the ear of God. And so there was a line crossed. And finally God said, they're, they're not going to repent. There's going to be no repentance. They have reached a place where the only thing that I can do is judge. And that's where the world will have gotten when these uh, judgments we're reading about in the book of Revelation begin to come down and the great tribulation begins. So God is a God to be feared in, in the sense of uh, I'm, I'm awestruck by Him. I, I respect Him. I don't want to make God mad at me. I'd rather judge myself than have to be judged by God. Now, these severe end-time judgments have been predicted all throughout the Bible. I mean, from you start in Genesis and go through the entire Old Testament and New Testament, and you'll see all kinds of prophetic predictions from various prophets that this day is coming. And you know what? David the psalmist was one of them. In Psalms 96, verse 13, David writes, For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Now, that's one we've never read. But there's David saying, the Spirit of God is showing me he's coming, and when he comes, he's going to come judge the whole earth. That happens in the book of Revelation. And so it is uh, as the Revelation unfolds. God is judging the entire earth, the whole world. We now have three more seals. We've been through the first four, and they were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And now we have three more seals to go. The seven seals aren't even done yet, and a quarter of the earth's population has perished. We now have three more seals that the Lord Jesus himself will break, and when he does, it will unleash cosmic chaos with signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars. Now, We're about to go into, with your study guide, your book, we're we're beginning chapter 4. Before we look at the next three seals, let me just briefly recap because we're covering so many things that are just mind-boggling. So let me recap real real quickly uh, what we've covered heretofore. First of all, uh, in chapters 4 and 5, we witnessed an incredible drama unfolding before the Apostle John's eyes. It included... 
the absolute sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. Can everybody say with me, he's sovereign? That means he's ruling his universe. It is not happening by random process. He's ruling his universe. Second, we saw the absolute earthly authority of Jesus the Messiah. He came as the meek and mild lamb. He returns as the lion of Judah. And he has absolute authority over the final fate of the earth. The earth is not going to end at the hands of men or at the hands of the devil. It's going to end in the very presence of the Lord Jesus because history really is his story. And then third, the providence of God in the coming world tribulation. We see in the book of Revelation, God is overseeing this entire thing. He's overseeing all of it. John now has seen this. He's so aware of the incredible sovereignty and providence of God. He's totally speechless, dumbstruck by what he has seen. Then at the beginning of chapter 6, we beheld the opening of the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, riding forth to destroy. They are not good news. They are bad news. We kind of have a a romantic uh, sort of a a fantasy kind of relationship with the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the West. But believe me, when they ride, you don't want to be on the other end of it. But remember, there were seven seals, so we've got three to go. Now, when the fifth seal is opened, no longer is John looking at dreadful scenes on earth passing before him. He probably was thankful to God for this because he was shown so much cataclysm, so so much turmoil and and, and heartache that it was a good thing God took him up into heaven uh, to view the other side. And so... He's taken up, and the view in the revelation that John records shifts to heaven where an altar is seen. And and when John sees this altar, here's what he writes, verses 9 through 11, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Everybody say martyrs. So what's he seeing now? He's seeing martyrs. He's seeing those that have been killed who have given their life for the cause of Christ. And the testimony that they maintain. They stayed true to the word and they stayed true to their testimony. They did not back down. They lost their life. Now, verse 10 says, They, that is the martyrs, they called out in a loud voice. Here's what they said How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? How many of you have ever looked up at God and said, how long? Now, there's people in heaven, martyrs in heaven, and, and martyrs, people that have not been martyred yet that will be among this crowd. And they are saying, Lord, how long before we're avenged? We lost our lives for doing right, for standing with you. How long before you judge the inhabitants of the earth? and bring justice. And then it says in verse 11, each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So God is essentially saying to them, hang on, there's still a few more to be martyred, but but it's going to reach the place where it's ripe for judgment. 
Hang on. Just as the blood of sacrificial animals in Old Testament times was poured at the bottom of the altar, if you read the Old Testament, see the way they did it? So the souls of those who have given their lives for God are presented as under an altar. He sees them under an altar. In chapter 17, or 7, verses 13 to 14, we, we note that one of the elders, one of the 24 elders around the throne asks, these, now he's talking to John. He says to John, these in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? Now, the elder knew the answer, but he's asking John so that John will want to know. And he is told, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's the only way to make your garments white. It's the only way to get your soul clean, the blood of the Lamb. You don't do it by hugging a tree or being a Buddhist. I'm just being honest. You don't do it by your own good works. These people that had the white robes got white robes, a picture of, a picture of righteousness before God. They got it via the blood of the Lamb. Now, notice he didn't say, those who have come out of great tribulation, period. He uses the article and calls it the great tribulation. So we assume here that these people are people who have come to Christ during the great tribulation, which lasts seven years on the earth. And we're going to see in just a little bit how in the world all these people came to Jesus during the great tribulation. We're going to see that there's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists preaching the gospel during the great tribulation. So surely they're going to reap a great harvest of souls. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But Antichrist is going to see to it that even though all these people are being saved during the tribulation because these 144,000 are preaching the gospel, Antichrist will see to it that most of them are martyred. And they will be amongst this crowd under the altar saying, How long, Lord? How long, Lord? My life was cut short for standing for you. How long before justice is meted out? They are told that others would also die, as we just read. And vengeance is poured out on the persecutors, which will happen at the return of Christ. That is when payday is coming. So the fifth seal, interestingly, is all about heaven's martyrs crying for justice and the judgment that awaits those who slaughter them. That's what the fifth seal is all about. But then next, John beholds cosmic catastrophes unleashed on the world with the opening of the sixth seal. When the sixth seal is broken, the scene shifts back to earth for a picture of the cataclysms, chaos, and confusion that's going to befall much of the world at this stage of future history. Now, remember, remember, here's Jesus. He's the only one who could break these seals on the scroll and release these judgments. So now, five have been broken by none other than Jesus himself. And here comes the sixth one. And when, the sixth, when Jesus breaks that sixth seal on the scroll cataclysm, horrific events begin to occur. John writes, verses 12 to 13, chapter 6, I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. 
The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. We would say pecans. Forget the figs. Look at a pecan tree. It's full of pecans, and a huge wind comes and hits that tree, and you you see all these pecans hitting the ground. He said... The stars are, 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 are heavenly, heavenly orbs. I don't, it can't be entire stars because they would swallow the earth. But meteorites, asteroids, the Greek word asteros, and, 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 and they, they are hitting the earth all at once like pecans being blown out of a full pecan tree. And look what he says about the sky. It receded like a scroll, rolling up. And every mountain and island, oh, catch this. Don't let us go past you now. Every mountain and every island was removed from its place. That's a major earthquake like no major earthquake. It's removed from its place. Every island, every mountain moved. Shaken loose. The earth, says John, is going to be violently shaken. This passage confirms what Jeremiah the prophet, and I like showing you other places where this was also predicted so that you'll know the Bible talks about this in many different places. But this passage confirms what Jeremiah the prophet wrote long centuries before John. Jeremiah wrote, I looked at the earth. And it was empty and formless. I looked at the heavens and there was no light. I looked at the mountains and hills and they trembled and they shook. I looked and all the people were gone. All the birds of the sky had flown away. I looked and the fertile fields had become a wilderness. The towns lay in ruins, crushed by the Lord's fierce anger. Isaiah the prophet also predicted the same worldwide devastation. Listen to Isaiah. Therefore, he writes, I, that is God, will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place. In the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. And again, Isaiah says in chapter 219, they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth. That's talking about people to hide from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. This picture of men hiding amongst the rocks and running into caves and, and, and really asking mountains to fall on them is the very same thing. John writes it in chapter 6, verse 16, and we're going to read it in just a moment. So, folks, the Great Tribulation is a time of horrific judgment. Why do we get up all the time and, and preach the gospel and call people to Christ? Why are we going all over the country and we're going to go all over the world and preach the gospel? Because we're in the age of grace, but that age is going to come to an end. Because the, the, the sin is going to reach that place where God says, the whole world is ripe for my judgment. There's no other option. I, I must judge. It's time. So, 
During the Great Tribulation, killer earthquakes are going to rock the planet. Jesus said the very same thing in Matthew 24. He said there's going to be earthquakes and famines and pestilences in many various and sundry places. A worldwide blackout will occur as a result of volcanic and seismic disturbances when ash is spewed into the sky. And there's going to be an awesome reddening of the moon as when a total eclipse occurs, occurs, but it won't be a total eclipse at all. It will not be by natural events. Even the prophet Joel predicted, quote, the moon will be turned into blood. Well, he's, of course, speaking metaphorically there. It's not going to be a, blood, a, a moon of blood. He's saying it's going to look like blood. It's going to be dark red like blood. The moon will appear like blood in the sky. This is not referring to the blood moons we've lately heard so much about that cause such a stir through the body of Christ. This is going to be a one-time occurrence during what's called the day of the Lord. Joel said it will take place, quote, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, which is the return of Christ. Again, Jesus uh, uh, concurred in Matthew 24, 29 about this blood-red moon. Listen to what he said. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That's when Jesus was asked, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And that's what he said. So you read Jesus, you read John, you read Jeremiah, you read Isaiah. You you read minor prophets, major prophets, New Testament and Old, and you find the same concurrence, the same unity of prediction. We're not in a planet that is evolving to a better place. We're on a planet that is devolving into a worse place until judgment falls and God brings in a new heaven and a new earth. In addition, meteors possibly asteroids and other interplanetary matter, slam into the earth, as I already said. The stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs. Slam, 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 meteorites. I think it was a couple of weeks ago, a meteorite really did strike, and it was a little tiny one, and, and I saw the story. This, this meteorite struck, and, and all these people are gathered around this hole that it made. And, and, they had, and boy, the scientists were swarming to look at this meteorite and study the rock that it was made of and all of this. And I looked at this little tiny thing that caused this crater. And I thought about these predictions. Meteorites far larger than that in mass numbers striking the earth. Say, Jeff, why would God do that? Listen, again, we must understand what sin does to the universe and how God must deal with sin. So, well, why does he have to do it that way? Well, he only did it one other way. Let me tell you where. On the cross of Christ. It says on the cross of Christ, God's wrath and judgment and anger fell on the sacrificed lamb, Jesus. And when you put your faith in him, then because Jesus took judgment for us, When you put your faith in Christ, judgment is lifted off of you because he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. 
And, and, and so on that cross, the judgment of God fell. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathed his last and gave up his spirit. And at that moment, your sin and my sin was eternally wiped out if you place your faith in him. But if you don't place your faith in him and what he did on the cross, God must judge the sin of the world. And that's what this is. And this ought to tell us how serious sin is with God. Verses 15 to 16, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And look what it says they did. They, John saw them doing this. They called to the mountains. They spoke to rocks and said, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is coming. Who can stand? How bad is the wrath of God? You'd rather a mountain fall on you than face it. How serious is the wrath of God? How real is the wrath of God? You'd rather rocks bury you alive than face the wrath of God. I'm just reading the book to you. Some of you are going, well, I didn't know this was in the Bible. I, I thought God was a God of love, and Jesus was a first-century hippie walking around in sandals just saying neat things, tiptoeing through the religious tulips and just kind of a nice guy. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus coming to earth was an invasion of our planet to deliver us from what sin was doing to us and to deal with the enemy of our soul, Satan, the devil, slew foot, split hoof, the, 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 the deceiver. I don't have nice names for him. Okay? But if you can just imagine, John is watching this. Oh, my. I'm surprised that this, because he was 90-ish here. He was 90 or so. I'm surprised he didn't fall over dead. God kept him alive as he saw these things. Now, we got to wait until chapter 8 in Revelation to see what the seventh seal brings, and we're going to do that tonight. We're going to get there. Meanwhile, as chapter 8, seven in Revelation begins, we're going to take another visit up into heaven with John as he again encounters the tribulation saints we first met back in chapter 6. So let's read Revelation 7, 1 through 4. Here we go. He's back in heaven now. And this is God. He's like a yo-yo. God lets him see things that are going to happen on the earth, and then God brings him up into heaven to show him the vision from a different vantage point. And so it says in verse 1, chapter 7, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Stop a minute. Look at the power of these angels. They're holding wind back. And just for the record, I, when I was getting ready for this today, I thought, I'm just, angels are constantly appearing in this revelation. So I, I did a little adding. I went and looked it all up. Here, here's what I found. 73 times angel or angels is mentioned in the revelation. 
73 times. 22 times the plural, angels. 51 times the singular, an angel. They, they, are, they are controlling weather. They, they are, we're going to see later, that they're going to dry up the Euphrates River so that the kings of the east can cross over. They are, they are integrally involved in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of God's judgment. They are mighty. They are immense. They are awesome. They are powerful beyond belief. They are God's messengers, God's servants. They are huge. They're invisible to the naked eye, but that doesn't mean they're not there. Of course not. They are hugely involved in end-time events. Now, Look at verse 2. I saw another angel. Here comes another one coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Verse 3, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees, they are told, until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed with this seal from God. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, Jewish men. And John then names the 12 tribes and attributes 12,000 of these special servants to each tribe. So of every one of the 12 tribes of Israel, there's 12,000 men called out during the Great Tribulation, and an angel places a seal on their forehead. I don't think they could see it, and I don't think that other people could see it, but God saw it. It was a seal that God could see, and it was, it was a seal of protection, a seal of authority, a seal of commissioning. And isn't it ironic that we're going to see in a few weeks the false Christ, the Antichrist, will, will counterfeit God and cause those that are submitted to his evil system to be marked on their foreheads with what John calls in a later chapter the mark of the beast. We all know it, 666. Hollywood's let us know all about that mark. But here's the deal. Why would it be here? Why, why would the 144,000 be marked here? And why uh, the, the Antichrist followers marked here? Because here is your thoughts. Here, here is where you think, here is where you, 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 you give your mind to one God or the other, to one deity or another. You serve with your mind one thing or another. It is the center of your thoughts. What I get from this is that whichever mark you receive, your thoughts are on that deity. And if you're with Jesus, your thoughts are on him. But if you're with the Antichrist, your thoughts and allegiance are with him. And it's shown right here by being on your forehead. Heavy stuff, folks. This evil mark of the Antichrist has a, also has a sealing effect. But for damnation, not salvation, for eternal loss, not eternal gain. If you get that mark, according to the Bible, you're toast. toast. 
Clearly, these that are being sealed in chapter 7 are Israelites, end-time Jewish people who accept Christ as Messiah and Savior during the Great Tribulation. They become the godly remnant of the end times and dynamic witnesses for the Lord. Isn't God good that even during the Great Tribulation, you've got 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams going all over the world preaching Christ? Come on, everybody. During the first three and a half years of the tribulation, they are going to proclaim the eternal gospel of Christ, spiritually and supernaturally protected while they spread the gospel. They're going to enjoy divine protection during the first three and a half years of the great tribulation from the vicious attacks of Antichrist. There's a seal on them. Listen, you can't go home till your time comes. I believe that those that are the Lord's can't go home, can't go to heaven, can't die until David said in Psalms 138.8, you will perfect what concerns me. You're going to perfect me. He that has begun a good work in you will, will finish it, perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. He that started is going to finish you. Amen. John not only saw the 144,000, but he also saw the fruit of their ministry. Verse 9, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Everybody say the whole world. The whole world is in here. There's been a harvest from the whole world standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They're wearing, here we go again, those white robes. And they were holding palm branches in their hands. And look at what they cried out in verse 10. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation. We've got to read this together, everybody. Ready? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then look what happened. Here comes the angels again, verse 11. All the angels were standing around the throne And around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, we got to read this together. Ready? Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Give the Lord a clap offering tonight. Amen. Amen. Well, I'll tell you, that's good stuff. Now, here comes John being asked a question by another elder. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? And I like John's answer. I think I'd say the same thing. Sir, you know. You really think I'm going to try answering you? You know. (laughs) I like that. He said, that is the elder is answering him now. These are they who have come out of great tribulation, or the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. How, everybody? In the blood of the Lamb. Now, I want you to listen closely to this description of what we are going to do in heaven. And this is just part of it. But this describes part of heaven's activities. Listen to this, verse 15. Therefore, they, who's they? All the redeemed. They are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them, speaking of protection and blessing. 
Verse 16, never again, oh, I like this, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down upon them, nor any scorching heat. Let me just make that simple. You won't get sunburned anymore. You know why? Look at verse 17. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. What is He going to do with this? He will lead them to springs of living water. And I like this. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more crying. No more weeping. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more sickness. No more cancer. No more heart disease. No more arthritis. No more insomnia. No more extra strength, etc. No more shots. No more... All of that is gone. I could park right there and preach the rest of the night, but I can't. Now, isn't that beautiful? This stunning description is of both Jewish and Gentile people who come to Christ under the preaching of the 144,000, and I believe it also includes the redeemed of the ages. Now, amazingly, one of the purposes of the Great Tribulation is to spark a worldwide revival. These multitudes dressed in white, worshiping before the throne of God, are the result. People will get saved during the Great Tribulation, but most will die martyrs' deaths. You've got to understand, folks, an extremely evil, tyrannical, dictatorial, world political system is going to be put in place. As we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, you won't be able to buy or sell without a mark. It's going to be a one-world economy, a cashless society. It's going to be under the, the iron fist of Antichrist primarily. If you name the name of Christ, you're going to be hunted, pursued, stalked, found, martyred. Many will. It'll look for a short season like, like evil is winning. But Antichrist's days are very numbered and short. Amen. But see, that's all coming in the next couple of weeks. We're going to get into the meat of it. Because you need to know what's coming. Because our whole world is geared for it now. Amen. Now the seventh seal. Here we go to chapter 8. We come to the dreaded seventh seal. Chapter 8, verse 1, and when he had opened the seventh seal, who's the he? Jesus. There was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Now, this hush of half an hour has been called the great silence. Up to now, the Lamb of God has been engaged breaking the seals of the mysterious scroll, which he only was worthy to touch or look upon. Six of the seals have been broken. There's only one to go. And as that seal is broken, there is a solemn expectancy seen rising in the angelic company looking on. All of heaven literally becomes mute at what is about to take place. John relays what follows, verse 2. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. Now, this other angel, in my opinion, has to be Jesus. You'll see in the Old Testament, he's often called uh, an angel 
when there is a Christophany, or that is, when there is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, you call that a Christophany. And when that happens in the Old Testament, uh, he's called an angel with a capital A. Here in my mind, to me, this is clear, this other angel is Jesus. No other, here's why. No other creature in heaven could answer prayers but Christ himself. An angel can't answer prayers. And we're about to see that the incense from the burner are the prayers of his martyred saints. You know, we think our prayers don't matter. We say, man, I prayed and prayed. I'm just not getting any answer from God. Listen to me. Look what the Bible shows us, that there is a canister, a container in heaven that contains your prayers. And it's sacred and special and precious to God. Because look what we're about to see. Only the high priest in the Old Testament was allowed to make an offering on the brazen and golden altars, as we see taking place here in chapter 8. And who is our great high priest? Jesus. Verse 3 continues. And a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. What does incense stand for in the Bible? Worship. So worship and prayers are mixed together. And where does it go? It ascends before the throne. The prayers John sees is the combined total of the cries of all martyrs and persecuted believers that have risen to the throne room of God demanding justice. I fear, when I watch people these days, I watch our Western media who are more and more and more anti-Christian. They pop off and, and criticize Christian believers. Our culture is more and more turning towards persecuting and, and, and muzzling and criticizing and being negative against Christians. And, and some of them, some of these so-called comedians or comedians, the things they say about Jesus, the things they say, and, and, and when they say these things, and I would never repeat it, and some of the plays that are being written, I saw one just recently produced, and it is portraying Christ as homosexual. And, oh, yeah, it's going to be well-received in our culture. Oh, yeah. Listen, the day is going to come when every word that came out of your mouth against a believer or against him, you're going to answer for it because it says so right here. Because when, when you attack God's people, you attack him. When you touch his kids, you touch him. Now, now look, what, what happens here? This, these prayers of God's people who have been hurt, persecuted, is going up to God and, the, and, and demanding justice. And look at verse 4. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Now, following this offering on the heavenly altar of incense and the prayers of God's people, cataclysmic events begin to take place on earth as God's wrath is poured out. But what is the connection here? The connection is when when the prayers of God's saints for justice reach heaven, 
God begins to answer by judging earth. And this has been building up, accruing, accumulating for a long time. Verse 5, Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth, and thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. And all of this dramatic thundering, lightning, and all these earthquakes are only a prelude, church, of what's about to take place. Because listen, the trumpets are worse than the seals. And are you ready? The bowls are worse than the trumpets. The seven seals have now been broken, and it's time now for the second phase of God's judgment, the blowing of the seven trumpets. Next week, we're going to be on, let the trumpets blow. Let's stand together, can we? Now, you know, after a message like this, everybody wants to breathe deep and let it out. So let's do it. <sighs> Can you say with me, thank you, Jesus, for the blood? I told you this was somber, but don't you need to know it? And here's what you really need to know, what it's about to tell us very clearly about where our culture and societies worldwide are headed, what we are already seeing so many signs of. That's in the next couple of weeks. Father, we thank you for the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for robes made white by the blood of your Son. And, Lord, we pray for our world. We pray for our society. We pray that, Lord, you will, Lord, send revival and send your word out. Lord, we, we, we give turning point to you, one church among, among tens of thousands. But, Lord, let this church, let our church carry your word to the world Hallelujah. at every means to our disposal. And, Father, we thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ.